That was For the World to Dictate Our Death. Uh, Vredesberg. Vredesberg. <laughs> we, just, we just did a Google Translate on that, and it sounded like a Midwestern accent. Yeah. Vredesberg. Uh, Lepers Among Us. And then, of course, we started off with Progenies of the Great Apocalypse. So anything about any of those songs that sort of jump out to you, like in terms, you know, we talked a lot about Progenies mm-hmm. uh, last time. Um, I know the Vredesberg song had a lot of Arcturicisms to it. Sure. Um, you know, in terms of the riffing patterns and stuff. I think this, would you say that this is the record that Galder really kind of starts to take over in terms of some of the lead playing? Or, I mean, I not that he was bad on the other records he was on, but... More right well, I think this is the record where he becomes into his own. Okay. Uh, you know, because I think that, uh, you know, it's he, him and Shagrath or Steen writing a lot of the material. Um, so I think in this record he wrote like something like six songs, uh, or almost six songs. Um, so I think that of these six songs that he wrote are some of his strongest material. And I'm talking about whether he did it, whether it's his material for Demu, whether it's material for Old Man's Child of any era. Um, I think this is probably his most inspired. And I think that you hear it, right? You can hear it in the way the riffs come out. His enthusiasm in the videos? Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's always had a particular he's, enthusiasm. Yeah, he's, he's kind of a goofy guy, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, a, fu- he's a funny dude. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Tom or Galder... Um, his name's Tom. Uh, his, you know, in this record, especially on those on the six songs that he wrote, um, are some of his strongest. And what's kind of interesting too, like that last song we lo- just heard for the world to dictate our death. One of the things you hear a lot, you heard it in Allegiance, which we open with as well. Is there's a lot of like. Um, I don't know if they're movie samples or there's a lot of sampling going on. There's like a kind of an industrial quality to this record. When you kind of talk to them, what what was their sort of thinking behind putting like a lot of the film clips in and, and different mm-hmm. like spoken word things? Was that like just something they're just screwing around? They're like, oh, this will be neat for this song, or was it part of like a greater vision of some sort? Or it's always part of the greater vision. I think that you know wherever the samples come from, they're always going to be. They're kind of buried too. They're not like real up. It's not like a grindcore yeah. sample where it's like yeah. yeah. That's what I mean. It's like yeah. like layered in, like kind of like film score type stuff. You know? Yeah, and I think there's a, one of the I think one of the engineers, Charlie Storm, had a had a had a part in, in putting those together, uh, and where they fit in the songs and how they're layered, and they're not like just obvious kind of things. They're sure. kind of just they're kind of almost woven into the mix of the uh, of the song itself. So, but yeah, they all have you know a place in the song. Um, now, where do you think like? One of the common criticisms of this record and with this era of Demu in general is the the sort of the sellout factor, I guess, or the the that they're not true cult, you know. And I think uh, that cult is, is cult. Yeah, we, okay. well, Mark and I always like to say cult because we just we like how hipsters have to write it a certain way. But there's there's obviously a pretentiousness to some of the music that they're doing, and and in general with like symphonic metal, and without getting like too deep into it, I mean we're where do your viewpoints kind of stand from from that, like in terms of this era of black metal and the kind of things that they and Emperor and even Isan as a solo artist, the, the things that they were doing with music? Like, how, how would you combat the criticisms against an album like this from like people that think it's a little too clean, it's too big? You well, know. I mean, Norwegians went through that. Well, they went through the cult phase, right? You know, if you look at stuff that came out in 91, maybe even 1990. 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, you know, they, already, they went through that. Mm-hmm. You know, they were teenagers when they, when they were writing this stuff. They, you know, they were already, they were inspired, you know, by Venom and Celtic Frost and Hellhammer. And Torment. Bathory, yeah. And Tormentor. Yeah. yeah, Tormentor was a big one. Bathory was a huge one. Um, they went through that. So if they were to write, you know, for all Tid five times, would you give a crap? No. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's the thing. Would you, if they wrote Stormblast five times, would you give a crap? And, you know, these people are musicians, mm-hmm. right? First and foremost, I mean, they're not church burners, first and foremost. They're not, you know, they don't kill, you know, Christians, first and foremost. You know, they're not on a cru- anti-crusade. or you It's kind of like the doom, you know, the, the British doom phase where, you know, you had right. four good, or three good records, and then, like, everybody's got to go, like, let's go clean vocals, let's go weird, let's, let's yeah. go industrial. Like. Yeah, they're all trying to figure out where their musical future lies. Yeah. Um, and they all want to, they don't, they don't want to write the same riffs over and over. Mm-hmm. So I think... You know, you're gonna write. You know, I think every songwriter, and I'm not one of them actually, will tell you that. Uh, you know, I can say this about writing reviews. You know, you're gonna write some reviews that are feel from a from a from a, a composition standpoint, like right on. You know, you feel good about the composition, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Songwriters, I think, are also gonna have that same 
uh, feeling. They're, sometimes they're going to hit and sometimes they're going to miss. Yeah. Right? And it's kind of any creative endeavor. As long as you're hitting a little bit more than you're missing, no people aren't going to notice the misses. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one-hit wonders are a perfect example of that. Yeah. You always remember yeah. for what you hit and what you didn't. What You're not remembered for what you didn't. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, for as far as being cult or not as concerned, or being true sat- satanic or Satanist or adhering to a Satanist viewpoint or a cult viewpoint which has its ties to Satanism, I would say Demu embodied that entirely. They're doing exactly what they want to do. The label's not telling them what to do. The label's funding this endeavor, which happens to have exposed this negative, you know, they'll say that this is one of the most negative records they've re- they've made uh, from a messaging standpoint. Because uh, you said the title means... Just humans in general are the most destructive species on the planet. Yeah. So, and being humans, we're like a cult, and Armageddon, of course, has that connotation, that sure. destruction of all. Um, so, uh, you can go back to the cult thing, though. I think that, you know, this, they, they, they already embody that anyway, but they're just writing different music. You know, just because you have keyboards and, and, and you're able to produce an album for a month doesn't make it any less underground or, or cultish or black metalish or. Um, adhering to the black metal principles as something that was produced, you know, sure. in three days by Dark Throne. Yeah, you know, um, they're doing it their way. Dark Throne, Demu's doing it their way. You know, you just have different resourcing. Yeah, um, and the fact that you can play like Ozfest, like they did for this record, versus Dark Throne, who don't want to play. You know, those are choices they're making. Mm. Dark Throne doesn't want to play to anyone because that's their position. Demu wants to play to everyone. That's their position. They want to, you know, they have almost an evangelical viewpoint on how they want to expose. Get their, the message to the masses as quickly as possible, yeah, or I mean, as that. efficiently. There's that, but yeah. there's also a professional aspiration as yeah. well, where Demu views this as their livelihood. Dark Throne don't, you know. Mm-hmm. We know that Fenris is a postman or mm-hmm. works for the post office in Norway. You know, he knows that Dark Throne is not going to be his livelihood. He has his other. He has his day job, which is you know where he works, and he has Dark Throne. Um, I'm not sure, quite sure what Ted does, but um, Ted used to be. A, I thought he was a teacher at one point. He could be. I'm not sure, but I mean, you can see the differences. Is like you know, Fenris goes to work every day, nine to five or whatever it is, at the post office for Norway, whereas these guys in Demu are going on tour. Yeah. So I, I don't really think they're anything. They're any different. I mean, I think if you talk to them, they're probably in the same mindset spiritually. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the most part, and that spiritual thing is probably going to be negative mm-hmm. or satanic or individualistic, if you want to call it satanic, you know, satanism. Humanist. Humanist, yeah. Um, I don't know how many of these guys really follow the satanic doctrine anymore. I mean, right. whatever that might be, but you look at guys, you know, like dudes in Emperor, they don't really give a shit about that stuff. It was, no. it was, a, th- it was a thing of the youth. And that, um, that's the important thing to remember. I mean, a lot of this stuff, especially from the early 90s, these guys were teenagers. Yeah, they're 16, yeah. 17, I mean, we're not, 18. Not no, yeah. earlier than that. Well, some of these guys are like 13, 14. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it, you know, like what they did when they were 13 to 14 year olds, I mean, like what Enslaved did. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, Ivar was what, 12 when, or 13 when Hordain's Land came out? Really? And then, so, so Viking Ligger, he was like 15 then, yeah, 14, not, 15. Barely, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, so. What were you doing when you were fifteen? Yeah. You were, you know, you were going to the video store, renting videos, hanging out with your Play friends, video games, not yeah. releasing this music that we, yeah. we that we've sort of um, canonized, you canonized, know. Yeah. we've 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 elevated, you know, mm-hmm. because we talk about it because we relate to it. So it's, you know, and I, I want to make sure that that's kind of these guys were also quite young, not when they wrote this album, but when they started out. Sure, yeah, and they're vastly different people. When they were teenagers to when they're twenty five, yeah, and then when they're thirty five, and then when they're forty, right? Mm-hmm. All those life stages are you know make you different persons. And well, it's kind how of how you approach music is different too. It's kind of like you know the the last episode that Mark and I did uh, for those of you that keep up with the podcast was you know we talked about the Big Four and, and mm-hmm. some of what they're doing and their more recent output and stuff and right. you know it's like uh, I listened to Lars uh, uh, interview and he was just kind of saying like there is no path for for thrash metal drummers like we don't have a band that we can look at in their like 60s to sort of say this is what you're supposed to be doing as a thrash band in your 60s we're it we're like the first one so like everybody's yeah. looking at us to see what do you do to preserve a career beyond you know your your goals change your your anger changes you're you're just a different person and so you adapt you know based on like how you mature and and you still want to take some piece of what 
is the core of your music, which mm-hmm. you can still hear in Demo, obviously. I mean, I can still hear a lot of Enthrone mm-hmm. and things like that in here. It's just more advanced, or, right. or they're yep. just taking ideas further. Yep. And it's, it's tough because we, as fans of the music too, we have a puritanical aspect to us as well in terms of what we expect from bands. Sure. And we don't always like to see them make some of the choices that they make. And sometimes mm-hmm. we're along for the ride with those choices. And sometimes we're like, well, good luck to you. Right. You got to, you know, put food on the table or whatever. But, you know, sure. so I guess like for me, you know, without getting down this rabbit hole, because we kind of talked about it. Where where do you guys lie with this whole kind of symphonic metal or classical influences in, in metal? Like, where's that sort of fine line for you? I mean, I feel like it really works well on this record because there's a lot of... Um, integrity involved because they are working. They, like you said, they wrote with the orchestra in mind. Like they had to integrate it and things like that. But you know, you get to like your your rhapsodies and fires, your epicas. You're you know, you're looking at what is this whole idea of symphonic metal and well, you know, you know, for me, I mean, I may have a. I think we talked about this earlier about you know off podcast about having a tolerance, a high tolerance, probably higher than. Certainly higher than Mark does, and I'm probably a, just a notch below you. you right, know? right. Yeah, me and Chris have always been kind of opposite ends, but we always kind of meet in the middle for a lot of stuff. Both are so. always in the middle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always felt like I'm a, like a half mix of Chris and a half yeah. mix of Mark, like right. a, kind of that, that weird middle ground there. But, you know, the symphonic stuff, you know, I think bands don't know how to use it, and I think a lot of bands sort of overuse it. So when you don't know how to use it and you overuse it, it sounds terrible. It yeah. kind of loses its effectiveness. It's like it swearing all the time. Like exactly. You don't right. listen to anything. There's a dynamic all... that's lost. Yeah. So if you listen to like Death Cult Armageddon uh, and that the orchestral aspects of that, and then you compare that to... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of something that's been very pompous recently. Um, well... Uh, Nightwish? I don't know. I'm just. Uh, I go to like sure. those kind of well, bands. Nightwish, or, I, Nightwish I, would, I wouldn't really talk because I think that they there's a lot of integration there. Yeah, even though it doesn't sound like it. They're good at what they do for the people that really like what it's they do. It's just I don't like what they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> but I think you know Nightwish. I'm sure. I think Michael Bublé is probably very talented too. But, you, know. you know where they write more orchestral and then the metal stuff is kind of slapped on. It's slapped on. Yeah. Well, not slapped on. It's probably integrated after. So I think that you know whereas Deem is more metal and they had integrated the or- gotcha. kind of the opposite. Um, but I'm talking more about. You know, pretty much any any metal band that has a lot of keyboards, a lot of symphonic aspects to it, where they lose sight of the song, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <clears throat> where, like Mark was saying, where you have this oversaturation of keyboard elements, this oversaturation of orchestration elements, and they kind of just become that song. And the bigger they are, the better the song is. Well, that's not really true for me, anyway. You know, I want to hear the, I want to hear a hook. I want to hear, I want to hear some melody. I want to hear some harmony. I want to hear cool riffs. I want to hear cool interplay, and I'm not talking about interplay like key, like a Jens Johansson versus like an Ingvar Malmsteen yeah. type keyboard, <laughs> or like what Bodum does and yeah. some well, of their stuff. Yeah, based yeah. off that mode. Yeah, exactly. Based off it's the basically Jens Johansson. Yep, thing. Exactly. Um, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that that sort of neoclassical aspect to it. I'd rather hear something that sounds cool and paints a picture because. You know, I used to be impressed by a flurry of notes, but the flurry of notes to me doesn't really paint a picture. Just kind of, well, that's neat. That's technical. That's probably really super hard to do and super hard to do well all the time, consistently. But it doesn't really do anything for me. It doesn't at this doesn't point really in my life. It's like empty calories, you know. Basically, yes, yeah. yeah, right. You know, it's an, it's an, it's a it's a very difficult exercise. You know, it's a very difficult calcu- musical calculation. But ultimately, for me, it's like, eh, who sure. cares? And to me, you can't hear, like, we're going to hear in this next set uh, song called, like, Cataclysm Children. You can't hear a song like that and not still think that Demu is fully entrenched in the black metal scene. You know, sure. with, like, mm-hmm. the thrash, you know, it's got the Spellbound by the Devil feel to it. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's fully committed. You can't, like, look at this album, even if you're not a fan of some of the symphonic stuff, and go, oh, these guys are sellouts. Well... Well, not really. I mean, like they're they're, they're not John Williams or yeah, Demo Borger. Right? Yeah, exactly. They're they're still doing Demo Borger. Like you, this sounds like the stuff they did. You know, seven, eight, nine years before. Yeah. You know, I think it's more palatable than the earlier stuff. To be honest, like I'd never want to go back and listen to For All Tid. Th- those are yeah, I think you should, but uh, but it's not like it's not like my go-to. Yeah, there's a few thing. songs on Stormblast I still like, but I don't yeah. sit down and like want to listen to that whole record from start to yeah. finish very often. And this know? is one of those bands too, for me at least, is like it's it's cool. It's it's like if it's there, there's like Shawshank Redemptions on TV, I'll watch it, but mm-hmm. I don't like seek it out. Right. You know, it's like I, I don't. I'm not the, like a fanatic about the band. I don't really like research much about the band. It's just right. like it's enjoyable. Sure. It's catchy. 
it's kind of like it's like junk food to me, kind of. Gotcha. I don't I don't feel the same way I do about even burgers like Dark Throne or right. Immortal Mayhem or Immortal or something like that. Sure, makes sense. How much influence? I mean, this is a Hall of Fame record. How much influence does this record have, like in resonance since then? Both for the band and for the scene and for like you know. Well, I think I mean, if you look at if you look at it from a if you look at resonance in two ways, right? What resonance can be the number of units sold, uh, which means it has a sort of a a commercial resonance, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore it may have a musical resonance, meaning it's going to influence a, the next generation of because musicians. there's so many copies of it right. out there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that you know, black metal became much more symphonic after this. Um, okay. It was symphonic before because you had Emperor doing it, of course. Um, we were probably one of the first ones to do it in Enslaved. contemporary style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, to some extent. And then, but the whole, you know, the rest of Europe, you know, became especially, you know, uh, you know, the northern countries, you know, Sweden, Finland, uh, Germany, for Germany, example, yeah. um, became much more enamored with this concept of sym- symphonic whatever, right? Power metal. Exactly. Whatever, I mean, everything yeah. became, all of a sudden, it became interesting to attach symphonic and you would, elements. And you would trace it back to this record more than maybe ones prior to it? I'm just, not that I disagree, well, I'm just kind of curious. It's probably, a, probably, this record has, is probably a trigger point. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's probably not the avalanche, right? It's probably something that maybe have triggered part of the avalanche, and then you have other aspects of the scene that were happening at that time in 2003. You know, Is there an avalanche to, record that you can think of that's maybe uh, not black metal that had a... I mean, if we're talking about you know, symphonic well, metal Well, if you look stuff. at Nightwish, for example, you, know, yeah. you brought that up. They're a very symphonic band. Yeah. Um, so if you look at what record came out in 2004, 2003, uh, are we talking... Uh, Oceanborn? Yeah, I think it's I Oceanborn. Remember, Wishmaster was before that, I, I think. No, Wishmaster. Ocean. Yeah, was... speaking Finnish to me. Yeah. <laughs> the only reason I know this is because I had to research this shit for that history of heavy metal thing. Okay. Like, I had to go and delve I know, into like, this the shit. Floor and... Jansen yeah. and a couple other singers. Or yeah. yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> I see it on, on the internet. But yeah. I don't know shit about. So I mean, you have you, you have a band like Nightwish coming out. You have a band like Children of Bodom coming out. Yeah, that's true. Um, Those... You know, you have bands on the, on the, from the states like Camelot coming out. So you have a lot of these, um, forgetting if Blind Guardian. Sure, yeah. Blind Guardian was doing this stuff. I yeah. mean, Night at the Opera. Yeah, right. Or yeah. Is that what it was called? Yeah, it's Night at the yeah. Opera. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, you had queen. these bands increasingly becoming more and more orchestral. Yeah. More and more uh, integrated with sort of the opposite world of, of classicism, right? Of of, of classical music. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a couple records that are triggers. I don't think there's ever an avalanche record. Um, if there was, it's probably you know it it would probably be something like night like Nightwish because it's much more accessible than Demo ever will be. Yeah, you know, and that record was huge in Europe, and not as big here, big, big. but yeah, they're all big, and they all be, they gotten progressively bigger. You yeah. know, um, like around here, you don't see any kind of main mainstream like radio stations don't play them, but yet if they play someplace in Michigan, for instance, it's sold out. And yeah, even like the Blind Guardian show we went to is like, who are these people? They don't go to any other metal shows, but they yeah. love. This yeah, yeah. It's just, it must be like an I mean, look at the thing. blind guardian phenomenon in Mount Pleasant. You know, yeah. we were selling all those import CDs for twenty eight bucks a pop. You yeah, know, exactly. like it was pretty nuts. Sorry, Oceanborn was ninety eight. I'm way off. Yeah, I was gonna say I thought that and uh, Wishmaster once, was like oh one. Yeah, so, so so if you look at I mean, if you look at albums like Century Child and Once, uh, Wishmaster uh, that was probably one of the bigger ones. Yeah, that uh, one I remember because I was living in Italy when Wishmaster came out and like Italian people Italian people like their pomposity yeah, like yeah, they love that stuff yeah, yeah i mean yeah. it was uh it was a huge huge record when i was there you know stradivarius was also out there i don't know not really orchestral but yeah um you you kind of have this all these little things happening at the same time especially in the power metal scene but i feel like demo really kind but of I mean, did something at that point you see this there's a sort of a convergence of black metal and death metal orchestral death metal like uh like flesh god apocalypse would kind of be a perfect example of a band that took what Demu did back in 2005 and are doing it now, but putting a death metal spin on it. Got it. And right? it's wildly popular. And somehow. The, and the people love it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, they're walking around in like, you know, Victorian era, you know, outfits and they have this huge orchestra concept. Steampunk. Steampunk, in that, man. In that camp a little bit now, too. Septic Flesh, yeah, I think so. I mean, they were always kind I mean, of they symphonic were before though. that, they were, too. But they were kind of one of the first symphonic kind of. Moonspell to some extent. A lot of that stuff was kind of dramatic. Dramatic, I guess, is a bit different than having employing an orchestra or orchestra aspects to do the work, right? Yeah. So, Seventy Flesh became that later. Mm-hmm. Um, 
later on. I would say they probably, you know, communion, communion. is the biggest yeah, yeah. one with an orchestra because yeah, they use yeah. a real one. Yep. But if you go all the way back to Mystic Places of Dawn, mm-hmm. there's still some very orchestral themes on there, but I wouldn't say it was an influence because they didn't really catch on until much later on. I mean, they had the huge Natalie, who was their female singer on like uh, Fallen Temple, yep. was an opera singer, trained opera yeah, singer. Fallen Temple was a big record So for us. For us. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're in our microcosm, little, our little microcosm I mean, world. If you yeah. compare Septic Flesh to, say, Nightwish, yeah. um, it's a big difference yeah Yeah. um so i I would say there's a couple things happening that triggered that symphonic kind of uh movement or or interest by by bands and younger generations of musicians who wanted to marry you know i want to marry deathcore with you know with holst yeah (laughs) cool you know or you know kids who want to marry like necro shit with you know um i don't know something a little more abstract uh and the guys starts with an S, classical. Anyway, uh, Austrian. I think he's an Austrian composer. More abstract, uh, but they want to do something you know more noisy, almost like progressive. You know, almost like, like Mort free Feldman jazz. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, huh. Stravinsky is there? No, not Stravinsky. Okay. Um, he's not Austrian. Strauss. I'm trying to. Not think. Strauss. Yeah. Uh, it'll come up to me later. Okay. Well, so we're Schoenberg? Schoenberg. Schoenberg. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the, the, yeah so he was a bit more. Uh, he was like Debussy or, or yeah. somebody that was like a little bit edgy. Charles Ives, who was yeah, like exactly. a little bit more yeah, exactly. kind of pushing less, in that. Yeah, it was a lot less um, symphonic and more tonal based. Yeah, 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 for sure. That had a huge influence on like the jazz. There was exactly. a lot of, like jazz people are kind of yep. listening to a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yep. so. so Cool. Well, so we're gonna get back into some symphonic stuff here. We got Blood Hunger Doctrine, uh, Al Helgens. Dod e Helvids Rike. I just butchered the hell out of that. We need some, uh, some, some Norwegians. Mark, who's the yeah. Norwegian guy? I can get a hold of it. It translates to the death of all saints in the kingdom of hell, okay. uh, is what we got going on oh, there. Elgans? Yeah, and that's got more of like an old school kind of Dima Borger black metal sort of feel to it. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Blood Hunger and, Doctrine. That's why it's in Norwegian, by the way. Is it because yeah. it's going back to the it's, Four Altid Stormblast kind of It's an homage to older records, older sounds. Oh, that's cool. That's why they kept it in Norwegian to kind of keep the Norwegian spirit. They don't want to be too far away from yeah. what they, where their original kind of sound came from. So that's why it sounds like it does, and that's why it's titled Norwegian. Oh, I like that. That's cool. Which yeah. all the early stuff was. Wasn't yeah. It? And then that's got a uh, really great uh, Simon part in it, yeah. too, which we kind of talked about the lack of Simon on this record. Blood Hunger Doctrine, too, one of the things that's cool about it that we forgot to mention on Progenies is that A Bath from Immortal is a big part of this record. He's a guest on a couple of songs. Yeah, two songs, I think, right? And that song, Blood Hunger Doctrine, he's not on it. He sang on Progenies, and he'll yeah. sing on a, a song that we don't have time to play called Heavenly Perverse. But you can hear Shagrath doing very A Bath-esque stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of floating yeah. over the whole record, which is pretty cool. So When Abbath was known as Abbath Dumakulta. Yes, right? it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what he's referring to, actually. He's, he's It's a reference to the first... Uh, immortal record because you said that Diabolical was a huge influence on Shagrath. Uh, he he loves that record, huh. so he loves the, the everything about it. He's that's one of his the quintessential Norwegian black metal records for him. And you can kind of hear it on Blood Hunger a little bit too because that's got like a doomier, dirgier feel, which Diabolical is a little bit doomier for like your modern like kind of high voice. speed yeah. 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 For, yeah. For immortal, yeah, for sure, for sure. And then we're going to end with Cataclysm Children, which is uh, a big favorite of ours, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back. So enjoy.
That was Cataclysm Children, El Helgens Dud Ihelvids Rike, or uh, what was it? Oh, The Death of All Saints in the Kingdom of Hell, and then Blood Hunger Doctrine got us kickstarted here. So we were just having some laughs off uh, off mic as I was explaining to them all the the douche flute playing that goes on in my school with vaping in the bathrooms now and I, I tell the kids that we call it the douche flute so we're we're having some laughs there's a douche flute dance that goes with it I'm trying to shame kids into stopping, the stopping vaping it, yes. you know I want them to be like real rebellious kids like go smoke in the parking lot or go cut like, yourself yeah do something <laughs> cooler than like you know making the, the shit and piss smells in the bathroom smell like strawberries you know so yeah. it's it's just really, it's really society's on a downward slope so yeah, there we go but uh, so we're kind of wrapping up things here and Chris you know it's been really awesome to have you you know we've kind of gotten off script from the album a little bit which you know again this is I think an album that you're either gonna really be into or like you either like Nemo or you don't there's right. not like a lot of middle ground there but I think you kind of know uh, based on the sort of song selection that we've thrown out whether or not it's a, a record that that's gonna be to your liking or not but I think it's been cool to like explore some of the background stuff with with this record. Is there any any kind of last uh, stories that you gleamed from doing the Hall of Fame that you think would be kind of 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 interest? You know, uh, let's see. So you know, I, I, this record has the Bathory cover on it. Okay, Satan, my master. Yep, which is a Japanese bonus track at the time. Um, so some pretty funny stories about that. Um, you know, Nick Barker played that. Uh, in the dark, in his underwear, <laughs> uh, and then Simon to get the really to get the mood, or uh, it's just something Nick does when it's the final song of the final session that he's doing. He'll always record that in his underwear in the dark. Um, just something, something, just a it's, ritual. Yeah. It's his ritual. He does it, and you know, off goes his pants, and next thing you know, he's, he's drumming in his <laughs> underwear. Been there, brother. Been there. <laughs> off go the pants. Right. Usually after work. Yeah, that yeah. work. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, and then I think uh, Simon said that on the on the on the Satan is my you know Satan my master song. If you listen to the drum roll, uh, it's actually pasted on top. Oh. Uh, because if you're a drummer, and Mark is you know is a drummer, um, For fun. if you uh, if you mm-hmm. listen to the way the hi hat's going, it's an impossible tom roll. He calls it the impossible tom roll, right? Because the hi hat's going. Which means that you know you couldn't do this tom roll. Yeah, one because one year <laughs> with your yeah, yeah exactly. So that's a fun that's a funny thing uh, that I don't think a lot of people know. Um, just because it's not a lot of things that that kind of get out there. Yeah, um, sure. And then uh, one is, and if I remember correctly, I'll have to look it up real quick. But uh, when they recorded the orchestra in Prague, uh, they recorded it. Um, oh, you're talking about at, this at a different uh, hertz. So they recorded the orchestra. Hold on a second. I'll find it. it was like a forty and forty-two hertz or something. Four, uh, four forty or four forty-two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, so they recorded four forty-two, uh, and the guitars are tuned to four forty. So they had to spend two weeks just tuning to changing the orchestral to match the guitar tune. Uh, in hurt, so it took them about two weeks to finish that to figure that out. Otherwise, the orchestra would sound in a different range than the uh, than the guitars. They wouldn't sound as integrated. It wouldn't sound. It would sound kind of a bit off, almost like someone's had it was like a speed up on the orchestra, where yeah. if you, or the music would have a slight slowdown effect, almost like, like kind on, of a, speed on a record up player where you can mess with the pitch control exactly, or or you can you know, if you touch the record, it slows down a little bit. Yeah, you, know, um, you might have that effect on it. That was kind of an interesting thing. Um, that they had to go down, they had to kind of uh, adapt to that two hertz because yeah. they couldn't have the orchestra do that, right? Because they already recorded the album, or they were almost done recording the album, and then the orchestra couldn't. They have fifty-two people; they can't all adapt to two hertz. No. Uh, so it's really so. so they, that was easier one. to record it and then go in the studio well, and they, then. I don't, pitch they didn't them. realize they did it. Actually. Oh, gotcha. So when they got back to the studio in, in Sweden, uh, Fred, and, you know, uh, Frederick Nordstrom. I guess had to be the one to sort of say, let the cat out of the bag, that this isn't really compatible, right? The orchestra recordings to the music recordings, the metal recordings, aren't really compatible, so they had to do a lot of editing to make it work. Jeez, that's funny. Yeah, so that's pretty pretty cool. Well, uh, and then I think the last thing is um, when they were talking about Abbott coming in to record guest vocals, he, you know, he, he wasn't really part of the original plan, but you know, Shagrath always has an, an affection for, for, uh, for Abbott's vocals. So he came into Gothenburg, and re- he, they recorded a bunch of vocals, only some of which you hear on the record. So there's a huge chunk of vocals that Alice recorded that are never going to appear on a record. Hmm. So it's kind of. Do you think they'll ever be on those demos that they're going to put out? Probably not, or? because the demos are fully realized before yeah. he's not even on the demos. Got it. Right. Okay. 
Um, but what they did say is that, you know, um, basically came in, he recorded his stuff, and then they just spent the rest of the time, like, partying their party. balls off. Yeah, did he say right. they made the producer puke? Yeah, as far as, yeah, the <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why he puked. I mean, there's probably a story there too. Yeah. But he made the he made the uh, he made Frederick puke. Uh, so yeah. he just said whenever he's around, he's you know he invites trouble. The bath is a drinker. Yeah. yeah he's a yeah, hard party, hard living. Yeah. So. When, when he was in he was in Philadelphia at one point when the first time he brought Immortal over for uh, I believe it was the uh, East Coast Metal Fest that Jack Koshik put on in Pensacola. Um, Brian went to that one with you. I didn't, yeah, I didn't get a chance yeah, to go. Um, yeah. He was in Philly, and he was at this place called Tattooed Moms, and he was totally drunk, and he was just like running across all the top of the booths, like they have, like you know, where you eat, yeah, eating in booths. In booths, he was running around on top of them, like you know, doing his black metal poses and shit like that. <laughs> um, so, uh, unfortunately, no one has a video of that because cell phones oh. back then were yeah. Yeah. pretty rare. Uh, but. Uh, it's a good story. Here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's here's one of Black Metal's leading lights running around a Philadelphia bar on the top of a booth or on the end, you know, posing with his invisible oranges. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to end with uh, kind of a, an appropriate, I think, song that really synthesizes all the things that we've been kind of talking about because really the first couple minutes of Eradication, Instincts Define, is almost purely orchestral before mm-hmm. the metal sort of stuff comes in because yep. we had debated on whether or not to play one of the orchestral versions of this or Progenies, but you don't really need to because you can really hear what the pureness of, of the orchestra without kind of the band on top sort of sounds like in the intro here. And it's right. you can uh, go look at it on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hear it, I guess. And yeah. the, that's the eradication has the uh, help was in hell, was part of the Hellboy trailer. Oh, okay. So you had both Progenies and, and eradication. eradication. Yeah, in the, uh, in the Hellboy. Yeah, this is incredibly cinematic you know the yeah. way you, you hear this song so apparently know, so. the band were in Texas when they were releasing that trailer and they didn't know that it was actually the trailer was coming out so they were telling me that they they went to see some movie in Texas and then the trailer comes on and they're like they're sitting there in the movie theater with a bunch of people and then they realize that that's their movie that's their song wow yeah, so. did they get paid Huh? Did they get paid? Oh, I'm sure they got. A, I'm sure they got a, a royalty of some sort for okay. that. I should hope so. Uh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> for that use, uh, that you know, whatever film usage. Mm, yeah. sync, I think it's called a sync license. Hmm. Um, so, uh, but that means so they kind of walked out of that movie feeling kind of proud that they, you know, they had a. Yeah. Nobody even knew that it was these black metal musicians from Norway had written this piece of music that then appeared in a Hollywood production. Sure. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Very cool. So thank you, Chris, for uh, for joining us once again on the episode. We hope to, to maybe get you to uh, record something else with us down the road here. and uh, Not wait five years. Yeah, not wait a, a bunch of years here. So, uh, But yeah, so thank you. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. No problem. And so for uh, Death Cult Armageddon from Dima Borger, which will be, by the time this podcast is up, should be uh, out in Decibel uh, as a Hall of Fame record. Yeah, was it the March issue or something? It'll be here. I think it's the next one. Probably yeah, January. It's gonna be the one after, oh, after Paul Bearer. So that was the that was the Paul Bearer cover with the Saxon Hall of Fame, uh, which is out as we're recording this. Yeah, just yeah. out now. Um, so I assume that it will be the March one. Yeah, yeah. very cool, very cool. So for uh, Eradication Instincts to Find and Dima Borger, I'm Jason. I'm Mark. And I'm Chris. 